0: Well, I've been excited to, uh, to get back into our Hebrews study. For those of you who are new around here, good morning. My name's Darren. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And we've been in this series in the book of Hebrews. And uh, now we've taken a little break for Christmas and we've done some things uh, over the new year. But now as we jump back in, I'm excited to sort of pick up the thought because when we left it in, uh, in what, November, it was a little bit of a cliffhanger. The, the, the writer to the Hebrews had sort of worked himself to this place, he'd focused our attention on Christ, he'd accentuated the idea. That That it was possible to know a lot of things about God, but to not couple that knowledge with actual faith and action. He'd reminded us again and again um, that we had to absolutely fix our eyes on Jesus as the anchor to our faith, the one who goes before us. And all of that is working to a place then where he's making the point that Jesus, as we got into eight, that Jesus is a superior high priest for us. And he's mediating a superior covenant in a superior reality. That's where we were in eight. I thought about whether or not it might be helpful this morning as we jump back into Hebrews, it would be helpful to kind of do a like a quick sort of recap and I realized that for the sake of time and for the sake of what's contained in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 14, we don't actually have time for that today. But what's nice is that in the, in the world in which we live and the time in which we live, technology makes it possible to go back and sort of refresh your memory uh, by re-listening or re-watching those messages. If there's a, a part of the text earlier in Hebrews that you have a question about or something that you're just sort of wanting to refresh your memory, you might just throw those messages on your iPod as you go for a jog or whatever. I'm, uh, you can sort of syn- syncopate your steps to whatever. Um, but I, I don't want to spend too much time re- rehearsing that or recapping it today because it's possible for us to do that on our own. Instead, I want to get right into the thought of what the writer is trying to say here in Hebrews chapter 9 as he is now giving us a very tangible and practical example of what he's already said. What he said is that Jesus is superior. He said it a bunch of different ways. And now he gives us a a very clear picture of what he means by, in the first 10 verses of chapter 9, talking about the old sacrificial system, talking about the old tabernacle system, what what worship looked like underneath the old covenant. And then what he's going to do is he's going to show the insufficiencies of that system juxtaposed with the absolute sufficiency of the work of Jesus, but the danger for us in this is he's, he's pointing out the fact that, that these things are meant to be a symbol or a type. They're a sign of something greater. And sometimes you and I can fall into the trap of sort of misunderstanding the signs. Does that make sense? Like we misread a thing or we misunderstand or we place the wrong emphasis on things. I was... Um, I was in Montana last summer. I go, I go to Montana once a year, usually, to teach at a camp up there. And I was at a place, we, we got off the plane and we went to a, this big sporting goods, like camping store called Shields. If you've been to Billings, you know Shields. It's like this giant warehouse of camping supplies. And as we're walking around in there picking stuff up, uh, there is a, um, th- I see this lady, like across the way, this lady, and she's got one of these, uh, you know, they, they make these big poodles. Well, they, I, uh, God. God makes these big poodles now. Um, <laughs> When I was a kid, there were poodles, and, and I only remember them being like little fuzzy rats, but now there are these bigger ones that are like small horses, you know what I'm talking about? Like the big, the big poodle, and no offense to you if you have one of those, but those are super weird, you get that, right? Um, and I see this lady across the store, and she's, she's got one of those big pony-sized poodles, and she's dyed the whole thing pink. So it's a big pink poodle, and it has like these puffy things around its ankles and around its neck, and it just, I'll tell you, this dog was an abomination. It was a, I thought, that dog is embarrassed to be itself, you know, like, I hope that dog never has to see itself in the mirror, because it has to feel a sense of shame, like, I am an animal, and I look like a monster, so... I know that from a distance, my face was probably like representative of the fact that I was disgusted by this dog. I was looking, and I remember even saying to my friend, like, look at that weird dog, you know? And the lady with the dog, she sees me looking, but she completely misreads my face because what she says to me is, you can pet her if you want to. Well, that's the last thing I wanted to do. I, didn't want to, I wanted to run from her, I didn't wanna pet her, I didn't wanna get any closer to her than I already was. But now I have this lady inviting me to come and pet her monster dog, and so I, uh, I was like, oh, okay, and so I went over and I you know, did the obligatory touching of the pink giant poodle, But that whole thing happened because she misread my face. My face clearly said, don't come any closer. And instead, she said, if you want to, you're more than willing to, you know, you're more than uh, allowed to come and pet it. And so I, I did. But sometimes we misread the signs. Sometimes what God is trying to say in the scripture or in our worship, in our interaction with each other, even in the way in which God is sort of leading us, sometimes we hear the spirit of God speak to us, or we see the ways in which he's laid things out, and we take them to to an extent and to a degree that he never intended, or we miss what he was trying to say entirely, So, in the first five verses, the the writer to the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit here of chapter 9, is talking about sort of, well, he he says it himself. Look at verse 1. He says, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. He's talking about regulations, he's talking about an earthly representation of a heavenly idea. He's like, The first covenant had these. There were these worship regulations. There were these instruments of worship. And he goes into some detail here. Look at verse 2. He says, For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered all, on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. He's giving us all these details about what the tabernacle looked like. And it, what's interesting is that you, you hear those things and you go, What? Like, what is that? What are we talking about? An urn with manna and the budding staff of Aaron, which was the symbol of his priesthood and the appointment of God into that role. The, 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 what is all of this with an altar of incense and candlesticks and bread? And there are all these details that we might be tempted to go, tell me more about those things, right? Tell me the mystery. Oh, the Ark of the Covenant, I know about that. I've seen the movie. It melts your face, right? <laughs> I know that happened. So tell me what is going on with that, Right? There is sort of a passing interest in the details sometimes that can be dangerous to us because we can get so bogged down in the details of the instruments of worship or the regulations of worship or the accoutrements of worship in an earthly place of holiness that we miss what God was trying to actually do and what he was actually trying to say. Because for all of the gold and all of the importance of having these instruments placed in the right place and all of their symbolism, the writer will say here in verse five, above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, and then he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, right? So he literally knows that he's writing to people that are gonna go, hmm, tell us more about this golden altar, tell us more about these candlesticks, tell us more about these details, and he goes, no! It's not worth getting further and further into that because that's not the point of all of these things. It's not just to study these things in detail. These things are all meant to point us to something else. And it's interesting because as you study, if you were to grab a commentary from our library or if you have one on your computer or whatever, it's amazing how much time commentators and theologians then have spent looking at those instruments and the way they're arranged. Why does he say that the golden altar of incense was inside the curtain when actually it was supposed to be outside the curtain according to the, and they will write pages and pages, reams of paper looking in greater detail at the symbolism of these items, but the author has point blank said, let's not get stuck there, right? And so for our purposes this morning, we don't want to get stuck there. We want to understand that this, these outside worship regulations, this earthly place of holiness, these rituals that were laid out by God that the priest walked through were for a purpose, but they in and of themselves were insufficient. The author is making the point that what these things and these instruments and these regulations and rituals were capable of was very limited. It was never enough. It never met the need of the people, not fully. He goes on to say in verse six, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, right? So we see the idea of ritual duties, regulations for worship, earthly, holy place. We see all these instruments, He says, they went regularly into the first section, that's the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He says, look, despite the fact that there are candlesticks and censers and altars and arcs of the covenant, none of those things were sufficient in of themselves. And he's basically laid out like a couple of different limitations. I want to just look at them briefly because again, it's not the point of what he's saying. But the point of what he's saying is that all of the things they did under that old covenant, that they were limited. First of all, he's talking about the fact that there was a limited connection. There was a limited connection, right? For you and I, the regular people, the people of God who wanted to please him and wanted to honor him with our lives, there was a limited access to God. We could go to the tabernacle or to the temple, but it was only the priests that were allowed to go into the holy place. And then it was only the high priest who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, allowed to enter into that place where the presence of God was said to reside. The rest of us, the normal people, we would have just sort of had to stand outside and hope that those people were doing something on our behalf that that worked, to sort of make some sort of relational currency happen between us and God. We were hoping that those people would perform their duties according to the law, that those people would go in and do what they said they were going to do, but... Those of us on the outside, the regular folks would have had little or no access to God. Little or no access to God. It was limited to that one priest who would go in, and even his access was limited, because he was only able to go in on the Day of Atonement once a year. And so there is always sort of this sense of, well, we want to know God, and we want to be known by him, but we're sort of having to trust that knowledge and that relationship of God to someone else. And that's a tough limitation. It's a limitation that Jesus will actually speak against when talking of himself in a place like John 14, 6. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus is saying is that it is possible to have a personal relationship with the Father. It is possible to have that kind of access, and it only happens through me. The people would have known that because they would have felt that sense of limited access prior. Even as we were studying Hebrews a couple of months ago, Hebrews 6, in talking about the Lord Jesus in verses 19 and 20 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Remember, we talked at the time we were studying Hebrews 6 that Jesus goes into the holy place not just on our behalf, but he goes there as a forerunner. And that then he invites us to have access, personal access to God, ourselves. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer in Hebrews chapter 9 is saying, look, there were all these instruments and tools. There's all these worship regulations. There's all these rituals that were taking place. But they provided limited access to God. They provided a a limited connection and it was exclusive to one person and only at a set time. Not only that, the the, the text here in Hebrews chapter 9 is making it clear that there's limited coverage. That there's limited coverage. I mean, the reality is that you would go to the temple and you would take your sacrifice and you would go and the, the priest would take it and offer it on your behalf. But the moment that that sacrifice was done, you started feeling guilty because you were immediately and still concurrently a sinner. All of us are broken. The Bible teaches that we were created to glorify God, but that we constantly fail in that. And when I learned that, I kinda went, yeah, no duh, I get it. I'm not, I'm not constantly glorifying God in my thoughts, in my attitudes, in my actions. I'm not worshiping all the time, and yet that's what I was created for. The Bible says that when I fall short of God's glory or worshiping him, that that's a sin. And that was true for the people of the Old Testament as well. They would take their sacrifice, trying to find some sort of cleansing of their conscience, trying to find some kind of freedom, trying to find some kind of connection with God. But the reality is, the moment that that ceremony was done, they were still sinning. They'd walk away from the temple courts and immediately be failing to glorify God in thought and word and deed and attitude. And so the guilt starts to pile up. And the shame starts to pile up. And the only thing they could do was go, well... In 364 days, I'll be able to come back here again and sacrifice another goat to try and help myself feel better. You would spend the whole year feeling guilt and shame to be able to go and offer a sacrifice that might ease that guilt for the moment the sacrifice was made, but then immediately the guilt starts to pile up again. And you know in that moment you have to wait a full year to have any kind of rest from the guilt and the shame. Because there was a limited a limited coverage, a limited coverage. It's why even you know when we see King David talk about his guilt, right? We know King David uh, had an affair with Bathsheba. You've probably heard that story. Not only did he have an affair with Bathsheba, but then he, he was instrumental in the murder. He ordered her husband to be murdered so that he could take her as his wife. And in Psalm 51, we see David write this psalm in which he recognizes that sacrifices and offerings are insufficient to cleanse the conscience and the heart of a human being, he says in Psalm 51 verse 14, which is just one piece of the psalm, he says, deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. He doesn't say, oh, the sacrifice of the animal has delivered me from the blood guilt, he's carrying it with him. And where does he turn, he turns to God and says, I need you to deliver me from the guilt and the shame And because of this limited connection and this limited coverage, the people had to just be flinging themselves upon the mercy of God. They recognized even in this time that the sacrifice was insufficient, that there was a limited coverage, there was a limited connection. And it also talks back to Hebrews chapter 9 about there being a, a limited cleansing. Look at what it says in verses 9 and 10. It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that can never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Conscience is that sort of inside voice, right? It's that internal voice that reminds you of the difference between right and wrong that sometimes is reminding you how you failed and how broken you are and how messed up you've been, right? He says these sacrifices, the the offerings and the sacrifices that were offered, they could not perfect, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. There was something purely external about the work in the tabernacle and the temple. You would go and you'd make the offering the way you were supposed to do it through the priestly system, but it didn't do anything for what was happening inside you. The guilt and the shame that you carried with you no, there was a limited connection, limited coverage, and limited cleansing. It's why it's so brilliant and so freeing in Romans 8, chapter one, or excuse me, Romans chapter eight, verse one, where it says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a verse we get our arms around. Think about that. No condemnation. No condemnation. It doesn't say that there is you know, no condemnation just for that moment that the sacrifice is made, and then we start accruing condemnation again. It says, look, in Christ, the, the idea of condemnation is eradicated. We are freed from it. We are set free from that, but that is something the people in the Old Testament system would not have understood because of limited connection, limited coverage, and limited cleansing. It did nothing for the internal. It only sort of gave you external things to walk through. And we we understand that, I think. Because we live in a world that carries a lot of guilt and shame, don't we? We as individuals tend to carry a lot of guilt and shame. It's why, you know, it's why Las Vegas has been so successful with their ad campaign that says, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Because we want to be able to go to a place and do whatever we want to do to disregard our conscience, to disregard our moral compass, to do whatever we want, and then not to feel anything about that later. Not have anybody remind us later about how broken and wicked we are. We like the idea, we're desperate for the idea of being able to turn loose of guilt and shame that sometimes plagues us and sometimes absolutely overpowers us. There's all kinds of you know, self-help programs. There are people in our world who say, oh, you know what, the, you know guilt and shame, that's just a societal construct, that's just something you do in your head. You shouldn't feel guilt and shame, just reject it, right? There's no such thing as morality. There's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as right and wrong. If you're feeling guilt and shame, it's because you've let somebody else put their rules and regulations upon you. you know, just, just ignore it. We live in a culture that wants to sort of suppress guilt and shame, or wants to ignore guilt and shame, or wants to pretend that there's no reason for guilt and shame. We've got, you know, guilt-free mashed potatoes, and guilt-free, what, I mean, there's all kinds of things. We like the idea of guilt-free. Because for many of us, we carry, despite what the self-help gurus will tell us, despite our efforts to go and do what we want to do and not feel any pressure for that, not feel any guilt and shame, we carry guilt and shame with us. And for many people, guilt and shame is what has started to define them. You feel like you can never get your hands clean, right? And so we understand that it did nothing for the conscience, that you could go and go through these activities, these regulations and these rituals, and they might make you feel something for a moment externally, but they did nothing for what was actually happening inside of you. The reason we know that so fundamentally is that that very same thing happens in our world today, and there may even be some of you who've come to church today as a way to sort of ease your guilt. That for the hour you sit in here, you feel like, okay, I did a good thing, I went to church, Or maybe you do service projects, or maybe you're part of a Bible study, or maybe, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of ways, religiously, that we do stuff to try and ease the shame, to try and ease the guilt, to try and fix internally what's going on inside of us. But in the same way that the lampstand and the budding staff and the bowl full of manna and the golden cherubim in the same way that those things couldn't touch the conscience neither can our regulations or rituals or activities or accoutrements none of those things can touch what's going on inside of us. And we know that because we just keep trying to find rest. But being set free from guilt and shame being liberated only happens in one way. And that's the author's point. He doesn't want us to get bogged down in the regulations and the ritual. He wants us to move on to the real heart of what he's saying here. There is an old system that Jesus is superior to. A new high priest, a better high priest, mediating a better covenant and a better reality. Because look at what he says here as he gets down to 10 and 11. Back to Hebrews chapter nine. nine. He says in 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, again external, imposed until the time of reformation. Earlier in this text He talked in verse 8 About the fact that By this the Holy Spirit indicates That the way into the holy places Is not yet open As long as the first section Is still standing That's kind of confusing language Let me try and boil it down for you He's saying that That old old tabernacle system With it's outer courts And it's holy place And it's holy of holies That that was always meant To be a type and a picture Remember sometimes We misread the signs It was always meant To be a, a picture of the fact That there were insiders And outsiders that there was limited connection and limited coverage, but that it was a type of two completely different seasons in the course of human, humanity, right? That there was a time when you and I would have had limited access, but in this new season, because of the coming of Christ, access is open to all. That guilt and shame can be things of the past, that we can be redeemed from it that we have entrance into the holy place through the work of Christ. He says in verse 11, but, and this is a, there's a big but in scripture. Sorry, that's gross, but here, here's what it says. I think that's a Pee Wee Herman joke, by the way. Just write that in your notes, right? Pee Wee Herman joke, big but, okay, fine. Hebrews 9 11 says, but when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared, here are the ways juxtaposing it. This is the way it used to happen. Limited, co- limited connection, limited coverage, liver, limited cleansing but he says when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come as i was studying this week i love this idea of high priest of the good things that have come you you know essentially that's what we're doing here today we are a church of the good things that have come and he is our high priest we are a church of the good things that have come that's what we're about here we talked about that at length last week right for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons uh, excuse me if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh or the outside if those ceremonies made the outside feel something momentarily he says how much more than verse 14 and 14 is a is a, just this beautiful verse it's a verse we should all memorize write this out stick it up on your fridge right how much more then will the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's saying, look, the the old system could do something temporarily for the external, but it did nothing for the internal. The guilt and the shame was never touched by that old system. And if that old system could do something for the external, how much more will the blood of Christ pure the conscience, purify the conscience of those who've been set free from dead works to serve the living Christ. I I actually wanna just take the rest of our time and look at verse 14, because he does such a great job of showing the juxtaposition, even just in that one verse. He starts by saying, there is an old system, but how much greater is the new system? And he starts with, uh, appropriately, the blood of Christ. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ? See, there's a difference between the blood of goats and rams. There's a difference between the blood of bulls and heifers, And the blood of Christ, there's a difference between the sacrifice of an animal and the sacrifice of the living God himself. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ make a difference? I think about the blood of Christ and all throughout the scriptures, we see the impact that it makes. Even Revelation chapter seven, verse 14, talking about uh, the, the end of days. This is, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The blood of Jesus is not like the blood of a goat or, or a sheep. The blood of Jesus cleanses us. That's why it says in 1 John 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. It cleanses us from all sin. Acts, chapter 20, verse 28 It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. When we talk about eternal redemption in verse 12, redemption means the buying back of those who were enslaved. It means liberation. And how does that buying back occur? It happens with the blood of Christ, not with the blood of animals. The blood of Christ, it says in verse 12, look at that back to Hebrews chapter nine. The blood of Christ in verse 12 says, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Just think about what this means for a second. He secures redemption but it isn't just momentary. It's not just something that makes us feel good for a moment and then we we, we abandon that for the next 364 days. The redemption that is obtained for us through the purchasing of his blood shed on our behalf, is an eternal redemption. What's that mean? It means that the blood of Christ cleanses you and me from the sin I've done in the past, from the sin I'll do today, from the sin coming in the future. It means I don't immediately walk away from the redemption of Christ feeling like, well, he's gonna have to do that again because I'm already prideful, because I'm already greedy, because I'm already broken still, in my flesh and in my sin, Jesus is going to have to sacrifice himself again and again and again. No, that's the difference between the blood of a sheep or the blood of a goat. Here we, we see the blood of a goat that's brought, and, and yes, that, that goat is pure, only in the sense that it's not capable of making a moral choice, right? It's not capable of making a moral choice. And we shed the blood of a goat, and we get some sort of momentary you know, respite from the, from the guilt and the shame, but it's not eternal. Now, the blood of Christ is something altogether different. It secures for us, and it secures for us. It cannot go away, it cannot be taken. The blood of Christ secures for us an eternal redemption rather than a yearly necessary sacrifice. This liberty is permanent, past, present, and future. Back to, back to verse 14, look at what else it says. It says in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered. Who through the eternal spirit, remember what was happening in the past was through ritual and through regulation. It was by, you know, observing the ordinances and making sure that you did things according to the prescribed way that God had laid it out. The offering that was made before was according to the, the regulations of worship and the annual rituals, right? It wasn't through the spirit. But but what's important for us is that it's not our regulation and our ritual that redeems us eternally. It's not that that those things are not the things that have secured our identity in Christ, it's his work on our behalf, which he does and this is important, through the eternal spirit. I love the trinitarian thought in verse 14. I love the fact that we see Jesus offering himself through the work of the spirit to the ultimate service and glory of God. It feels very similar to what we talked about last week. That the reality is it's not going to be just all of us here in this church sort of putting our hand in the middle and going, "Hey, let's live for Christ." Let's be loving and sacrificial and let's do it. We can, right? That's never gonna work because we're broken people. The only way it works is when we become a church that recognizes everything that happens happens through the empowerment of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't offer himself through ritual. He doesn't offer himself through regulation. He offers himself through the Spirit. Through the Spirit, through the eternal Spirit rather than through ritual or repetition. It says in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered himself don't miss it that offered himself is important because remember again for me if I'm a person living under the old system then what do I do I I have a goat it looks pretty good it's a nice goat I I take that goat to the temple and I have its throat cut for my sin for my wickedness right but that's not something the goat volunteered for it's not capable of volunteering it's something I put upon that goat Right? I take the goat, I take it in, we slit its throat in order to obtain some sort of release and some sort of freedom for me in my relationship with God. But it was always involuntary because it was another animal. I mean, the, the Jews would have had to feel a sense of like the insufficiency of that. Because yes, I'm bringing this goat and I'm placing my hand upon its head as the scapegoat, as a symbol of the fact that I'm laying my sin upon this goat. And yes, this goat is perfect in one sense, that it hasn't failed to glorify God, but only because... Again, it's incapable of moral thought, but he didn't volunteer to be here. Sacrifice this goat, but it didn't really do anything for my heart. Why? Because that, that's something I put upon the goat. I think sometimes we think that Jesus was murdered on the cross, right? I think sometimes we think that he was like bamboozled by Judas or the high priest or whatever, that he got tricked, that he was hoping to have a long and fruitful preaching ministry, you know, and then one day they came and arrested him and killed him and what a drag. Can I tell you that is not true? That Jesus was not murdered, he is not a martyr, not in the classic sense. Because Jesus wasn't killed, he offered himself. It says in John, the reason the Father loves me, Jesus says, is because I give myself, I have the power to lay down my life and to take it up again. Jesus wasn't put on the cross, he went to the cross. By the blood of Christ, right? By the blood of Christ, offered Voluntarily, it says in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Not only does he offer himself, but there's this reality that he is perfect. That he's perfect. It says that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, and yet he didn't sin. First Peter says that when he was reviled, he didn't have a curse in his mouth, he was without sin. 1 Peter 2, excuse me, 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22 says, for this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus offered himself Unblemished. He gave his own life and he was perfect. He never failed to glorify God in thought or word or deed and attitude. And as such, he was the perfect sacrifice in our place. He offers himself unspotted, unblemished. And look at what else it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, He doesn't offer himself to mankind. He doesn't offer himself to, you know, the religious organizations in the world. He offers himself to God. Why? Because God is the one who judges justly, right? He is the one who upholds the standard of holiness and righteousness. Jesus offers himself without blemish through the leading of the eternal spirit to to shed his own blood on our behalf to God. Why? To create peace with God and from God to create peace. That's, again, why a passage like Romans chapter 8, verse 33 is so important. Romans 8, 33, in a much longer conversation, it says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Listen, I I don't know what kind of guilt and shame you came in here with today, but let me say this. We have a living God in the Lord Jesus Christ who is interceding for us. It's not just a one-time thing. He offers himself to God and he continues this intercession on our behalf. Jesus comes at the leading of the eternal spirit to offer himself without blemish to God to create peace between God and man. That's not something that Jesus needed, by the way. He didn't have any sort of reconciliation that needed to happen between him and the Father and the Spirit. He does that on our behalf. He offers himself to God because we were incapable of it, because we couldn't save ourselves. With all of our religious regulations and all of our rituals and all of our worship accoutrements, we couldn't do it. We could not save ourselves. And so through the eternal Spirit, he offers himself without blemish to God. Back to Hebrews chapter nine. Back to Hebrews chapter nine, verse 14. He says, How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Those are really important. This verse 14 is so rich. But think about what this means. Jesus offering himself without blemish by his own voluntary choice he gives himself up for us To what end? To what? Why does he do that? He does it to purify not just the external, not just to give us some motions we can walk through to feel externally good about ourselves for 24 hours. Jesus dies in our place. He offers himself to God to purify our conscience, right? To do something to the internal, which you and I on our own, no external regulation could ever touch. He does something to the inner man He redeems our inner being, right? He rescues us who are dead in sin and extends to us resurrection life to purify our conscience but not just to purify our conscience to purify our conscience from dead works what does that mean well the idea is that as long as we have a, a conscience as long as we have this this voice inside that's reminding us of how bad we are of how many mistakes we've made of how stupid we've been of all the wrong things we've said and all the ways in which we failed to glorify god then there will always be this struggle in us to try and perform to try and do right you felt that Some of you are, again, here at church this morning because you're trying to ease a guilty conscience. So you go, well, if I go to church, if I take my kids and put them in the Sunday school or whatever, at least I'm a good parent, right? I feel a little bit better. But that doesn't purify your conscience. It's just sort of an external way to kind of get you through the next couple of hours. The work of Jesus on our behalf, because he is our substitute, because he takes our sin upon himself, past, present, and future, that through the shedding of his blood, he secures an eternal redemption for us. What it does is it sets our consciences free from dead works. What are these dead works? They're all the things we try and do to justify ourselves. All the things we try and do to make ourselves feel a little bit better. All the things we try and do to quiet the voices in our head. All the things we try and do to impress other people or to try and convince them that we're not really as bad as we might seem. No, see, when I put my faith in Christ and in His eternal redemption and His sacrifice on my behalf, I can have that conscience silenced and then I no longer feel the compulsion to do the dead work, the unnecessary work. Why? Because, listen, I'll admit it, I'm a broken guy. I don't do everything right. I make mistakes and so do you. And I don't have to pretend like it's any different. Why? Because Jesus knew who I was when he died to rescue me. He knew who I was. He knew I was broken. He knew I couldn't save myself. He knew my conscience was absolutely filthy and corrupted. That I was a broken person inside and out. And he died on my behalf in order to purify that conscience from those dead works. I don't have to occupy myself with dead work to try and prove anything to you or to myself. I can rest in the knowledge that Jesus knows who I am and he loves me and he died for me. You know, the the Jewish people would come, like I said before, and they would place their hands on the head of the scapegoat. And it was the symbolic picture of transferring their Sin to this animal That's not the picture that we have of what Jesus does for us It's not not that we all As a congregation or as broken human beings That we grab Jesus and we hold him down And we all sort of force our hands upon his head And we go take this, take this wickedness And take this sin, we can't deal with it It's going to be on you, that isn't the picture The picture is of Jesus Taking us by the hand And placing our hands upon his head And saying Give it to me you can't do anything with it. You are powerless to effect a change. You are powerless to get rid of the guilt and the shame. You are powerless to cleanse your conscience. No re- religious you know, exercise. No ritual will ever pure your conscience. Lay your sin upon me. He takes our sin upon himself. And the picture is of us not forcing the sin upon him, but of him willingly taking it as our king and our savior. Jesus offered himself through the eternal spirit to purify our conscience from dead works and not just to purify our conscience from dead works, but to purify our conscience to something as well. He doesn't just set us free from something. He sets us free to something. He sets us free from dead works and a guilty conscience and he sets us free to what? Serve the living God. This isn't a sacrifice that's dead. You know, at the end of the sacrificial system, they always had to sort of drag away or burn the sacrificial animal. Jesus isn't dead. No, he's not not a sacrifice that was exhausted. He is a living God. And we have been purified in our conscience, set free to serve the living God, set free from the guilt and the shame, set free from the sin, that spiritual death, and set free to occupy a life that is freed from guilt and shame, to occupy that life then with service in response to who he is a life that glorifies God. What do I do with my time if I'm not guilty and full of shame anymore? What do I do with my time if I'm not constantly trying to occupy myself with all these dead works that don't bring me any relief anyway? What do I do with all that space? What we do with the space is we occupy ourselves in service of the living God. That's what we do with it. That's where we go with it. Listen, the writer is saying, don't, don't misunderstand the signs. Don't misunderstand what's being communicated here. All of these instruments, the religious exercise, the ritual, they were there for a place. They were there to point us to something greater. But when Jesus came, he secured through the shedding of his blood an eternal redemption for us to do what the old system never could, to cleanse our consciences. I don't know where you are this morning, but I would guess that there may be some of you here in this place who don't have any idea what a what a cleared conscience feels like. And maybe you're in that spot today because... You've never put your faith in Christ because you've never surrendered yourself to follow him, to receive from him that resurrection life that he gives. But there may be others of you who when you hear about freedom from guilt and shame, your response is, it can't be that easy. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how broken I am. Can I tell you this this morning, church? It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. We're talking about the shed blood of Christ on your behalf that is capable to secure a purity of conscience from dead works to the service of the living God. If you're here this morning and you're carrying guilt and shame, I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. And I wanna take this next song, I wanna take the next song as a time for us to respond. And I, I don't want you to stand, you don't even necessarily have to sing, but I just want you to sit in a posture of receiving, right? To listen to the spirit of God and say if he might, see if he might say to you, I wanna set you free. I want to set you free from guilt and shame that you're holding on to that you keep reminding yourself of or maybe that our enemy the devil continues to remind you of but that guilt and shame has no place in the life of someone who's been purified the shed blood of Christ. If you're carrying guilt and shame here this morning I want to invite you, even as we sing this song to see if by the power of God's spirit working in and through you you can't turn loose of that. Turn loose of it and really understand your identity as being one. It's been set free in Christ.